Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Sister Liz. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, thank you all for being here. If we haven't met, my name's Arnaldo, uh, lead pastor here. Um, and as I mentioned last week, we are in this series. Excuse me, where I, I didn't do a mic check. I was uh, a bit occupied before, so we'll, we'll get it. Uh, but last week, we started a series through the book of 1 Peter. And as I mentioned, uh, Peter's expressed purpose uh, for writing this letter of 1 Peter was so that uh, the Christians in modern-day Turkey uh, would remain loyal to Jesus in the face of the social pressure to do otherwise, to abandon the faith, to defect. In the same vein, I want to say that the Holy Spirit has given us this word. Uh, He's preserved this word in Scripture so that we would be instructed and encouraged to remain loyal to Jesus despite uh, the incredible social pressure that we face today to abandon faith. And the situation, I want to remind you, for the Christians back then is incredibly similar to uh, the situation today in our modern secular culture. They experience psychological pressure to compromise their faith, and so do we. Uh, They were met with uh, social ostracism and exclusion, and so do we. Uh, They felt the potential pull of their former uh, ways of life, and so do we. They were surrounded by a very seductive non-Christian worldview, and so are we. They felt the tensions of the inconsistent behavior of people in their community, and so do we. They experienced doubts, like we do, about the reliability of God's promises in the future. They suffered from Satan's constant, deadly temptations and trials, and you best believe that so do we. In other words, 2,000 years later, we are in the very same situation that the very first receivers of this word were in. And that's why this book is so important, incredibly important for us. It, it, it knows what we need. Last week, we explored three sets of tensions that we need to hold together if we're going to continue to follow and, and that, that's, that's why we're here. Right? We want to follow Jesus in case, like newsflash, what are we doing here? We're, we, we're seeking to follow Jesus together, not only on Sundays, but in the everyday of our lives. And if we're going to do that, we need to hold these tensions, the tension of being rejected by our culture and yet being accepted by God. The tension uh, that we will be grieved by that rejection, and yet we rejoice in our salvation. The tension that if we rather sin, or if we'd rather suffer than sin, we need to focus on the glories of Jesus. And today, our text is going to begin with a very important word uh, that we, we we often will gloss over. Therefore. Therefore, therefore is like a grammatical tendon in the body. It, it, it holds things together, connects things together. And so we have to understand that what Peter is going to say today, we must understand it in light of what Peter said last week, what we spoke about last week. Namely, that we've been born again, right? If you're a believer here, I'm not assuming everyone is, but if we're believers here, we've been born again to a living hope. Uh, we, we've received an inheritance that does not fade, it does not defile, it does not perish. And we've been given this salvation, this gospel salvation that prophets barely saw and angels craved to look into. And so hear me, whatever I'm going to call you to do today has to be rooted in what Jesus has already done. Because we're going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be challenging you today. But if we think that this challenge is going to earn us favor with God, we're going to put the cart before the horse. This is so incredibly important for us to understand that whatever scripture is going to call us to do today comes after the fact that that we've already been saved by grace, which means that these commands that Peter will speak to today, speak into today, it, will, uh, it does not mean, cannot mean, uh, that we are saved through them, that we're justified through them. They are resu- the result of the fact that we have already been saved. This is so important to understand because if we try to do these things in our own strength, two things will happen. You will either fail and get really depressed, or worse, you will succeed, or you think you will succeed, and become very proud. 
In essence, if we get this wrong, we will try to justify ourselves. We will try to become our own saviors. We, we will think that we can earn our way into the court of God. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know you're used to uh, sort of hearing a sermon and hearing that at the end, but I want to put it at the front that the gospel is the reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's as a result of his great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope that now we respond with action. I want to remind you, uh, I've often said this, uh, Dallas Willard, the great late Dallas Willard, uh, would, uh, it was famed for a lot of things. One of the things that he said was this, that grace, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Two very different things. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Effort is an action, earning is an attitude. And so when we think about grace, grace is not opposed to us putting it to work. It's opposed to us thinking that if we put it to work, we're earning something from God. It is, a, it is opposed to that attitude, not opposed to the effort. And towards that end, help me to pray, and then we'll jump right into it. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us enough health and enough energy to be here, Lord. We pray for those who are unwell uh, and, and can't join us today, but we ask that you would go before us now. Uh, we, I personally don't know, Lord, everyone's story here, but, but you do. Uh, you know what they need. Uh, you know what, why they're here. Um, and so I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would meet them where they are, that you would awaken new faith, that you would uh, bring maybe uh, complacent uh, Christians, that you would wake them up to your glory, to your beauty. I pray that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful that I've prepared and help me to remember the things that will be. And ultimately, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said? And the church said? What is possible? What's, like, that's, a, that's a very complex and seemingly simple question, but it is a very deep question that can be answered in so many different ways. In a, in a philosophical sense, we ask what is possible in terms of the limits of reality. Like, what's possible for us to do? The, the laws of nature, the laws of physics. In a, in a practical sense, we ask what's possible for us to achieve or to do. Things that were not possible at one time, could they become possible at another time? In fact, we know in our own age that things that at one point seemed to be impossible have now become commonplace. We can cure diseases that at one, at one place were commonplace. We can communicate with almost anyone around the globe virtually instantaneously. Whereas a mere hundred years ago, you'd have to send a pigeon or uh, what is, Morse code. Like you'd have to send a, a telegram across the world to communicate. But now it takes a simple phone call. A year ago, I couldn't hit a jump shot to save my life, right? Today, right? I've heard it said of me that I rival the best, but that's another story. Now, you all have particular sets of skills that you've acquired over time. When you started, you weren't able, you didn't have a clue what you were doing, whatever that skill uh, would be. And it somehow becomes second nature to you. What was once not possible for you, through the passage of time and through doing it, it's become possible. It is absolutely not possible for me to run the Sydney Marathon. But it can become a possibility if I get two new knees right, and train really hard. It is absolutely not possible that right now I can dunk a basketball. I can't jump that high. But again, with two new knees and a lot of training, I can do it one day. It's absolutely not possible that our nine-month-old EJ can read a book today. But with the passage of time and practice, it'll become possible for her to do so. On and on we can go. We all have and we all live on the horizon of possibilities, what we can't do today and what we might be able to do in the future if we begin to do the right things. But we, we often live between these poles of delusion and disappointment when it comes to possibilities. We all live between delusion and disappointment. We either think that we're better than we actually are, case in point, me with basketball, right? Or, or we really don't believe 
that we can ever get better at something, that we can actually progress and get better. While this is true in, uh, in the sense of, of getting in shape or developing a new habit, uh, learning a new skill, whether it's sewing or, or getting better at a sport, learning a new language, whatever it may be, it is no less true of our spirituality. And we, we often forget this. That it is no less true of our discipleship, of our formation. There, there may be some of us here that are living in the delusion that thinking we're much further along than we actually are. But I have a sneaking suspicion that for the majority of us, uh, uh, we, we, we don't believe, we, we can't see uh, the, the, the reality that we can actually grow in Christ. We feel stuck. We feel like we're, we're, we're like our wheels are just turning in mud. I, I feel, I have a sneaking suspicion that we're far more disappointed with where we are, quote unquote, in our spiritual journey and we, than we are rather tempted of where we are, uh, to be proud about where we are. In, in, in a word, in a word, we've largely ignored or explained away for whatever reason the call to be holy. We don't think it's possible for us anymore. That's for, that's for other people. We've abandoned the hope of our own holiness. We're stuck, and because we're stuck, we don't really believe that holiness is possible. It is no longer on the horizon of our possibilities. We have nothing then beautiful to offer the world because we look just like it. We, dim, we diminish our scandalous witness when we don't believe that holiness, real holiness, which we'll speak about today, is possible. But holiness has fallen on hard times because we've misunderstood it because we we on the other hand we, we we don't really want to be identified as holy people we're grace people that that that's who we, we're grace people holiness not not really and so what we're going to do today we're going to explore this beautiful vision of what it looks like to live a holy life by asking three questions what is holiness Right? We, we, need, we need to clear the cobwebs here. We need to reimagine what holiness actually is, why it's important, and how do we get it. So holiness, what is it? Why is it important? And how do we get it? Now, I want to offer us two broad categories that are going to be necessary for us if we're going to understand and pursue holiness. Because holiness is not just one thing. It is actually both what you already are and what you are becoming. Holiness is a process. It's a state of being and it's a process of becoming. You have to understand this, that holiness is both a state of being. It's what you are if you are in Christ. And it is a process of becoming. I know this may sound weird or contradictory, uh, but as much, as much as we know in our late modern age in the scientific community, there's still much that we don't understand. Take light, for instance. Light uh, exists both as a wave and as a particle, right? It, it is light being wave and particle is a fundamental property of the universe that we live in, whether you realize it or not. But it wasn't always thought to be so. In 1801, Thomas Young discovered that light behaved like a wave. A hundred years later, 1905, Albert Einstein will discover that depending on the kind of an, uh, uh, experiment that was taking place, it actually behaved like a particle. Now, boring, right? You don't understand how revolutionary that was for our world. It was absolutely explosive in the scientific community. Two seemingly incongruent ways of thinking about the same object. In the same way, holiness is both what you already are, but it is also what you are becoming. We have to think about it in those two ways. It is a state and it is a process. And so if you're a Christian here today, you are a holy one, Scripture says. You're a hagios, the New Testament calls you. A holy one. That's, that's who you are. You are in a state of holiness. Another way to say it is you are sanctified. And to be sanctified is simply to be set apart for the purposes of God. You can, you, God took you and he set you apart and he said, now you're on team Jesus. That's what that means. You're wearing his jersey. You're, you're sanctified. It's a result of what we spoke about last week, that you are chosen and therefore you are set apart. This is your status. This is your objective reality now because you are in Christ. 
We are now the holy ones of God. We're the holy ones of the holy one of Israel because he has made us holy. He has sanctified us. He has placed us in him. You are, in other words, a saint. You're a saint, right? Sainthood is not reserved for the Teresas and the Augustines and the Pauls. The Corinthians were saints. Now, that may mean nothing to you. Go home and read 1 Corinthians. Church gone wild. And Paul calls them saints. Sainthood is reserved for you if you are a follower of Jesus. 61 times in the New Testament it is used for disciples of Jesus. Listen, we're going to preach to 1 Corinthians later next year, probably. Don't quote me on that, but probably. You, you'll real, like, I hope you remember this moment. That when we go through the lives of the Corinthians, right? There was a guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. There was a guy who was getting drunk at communion. It was wild. Paul addresses that church of saints. It, it, it is an objective reality, apart from your performance, that right now, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. To be made a saint in the sense of the objective state is a work of God's own regenerating power, taking out your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh. To be a saint is to, uh, in, in, in the sense of the process then, is to partner with the Holy Spirit to become more of what you already are. And this is what I want to communicate before we move on. That right now, you are sanctified. You are holy. You are objectively His. And all of this is not based on your performance or your growth or your process or your struggles or your sins. The fact that you are a holy one, a saint, is not based on anything you have done, anything you have said, or anything you are. It's not based on your family lineage, your ethnicity. I don't care how your attendance is on PCO. That is not what makes you a saint. Jesus has made you a saint. I, I don't care what kind of perceived innate goodness you think you may have. Listen, you were dead, every single one of us. Every single one of us, at one point or another. We were dead, or we still are. In our transgressions and sins. And God made you alive with Christ. That's, by the way, grammatically in the passive, right? It doesn't, you, it, you didn't make yourself alive. God made you alive with Christ. And now that you are alive with Christ as a gift, not because of your own works, not so that you can boast, he calls you now to partner with him now to see the character of Christ formed in you. This is so incredible. Like, I, I don't understand how we've lost this in, in, in many ways. You, you can think of pursuing and growing in holiness as three types of boats. Some of us think that holiness is a rowboat, and so it's all on me. I'm doing all the work. Some of us think uh, that uh, uh, holiness is a speedboat. And so all we got to do is let go and let God. Just get in the boat and, and, and let him take you away. But pursuing a life of holiness is more like a sailboat, which I've never been on, by the way. But I understand you have to hoist sails and you have to do things to make sure that the boat is in the right condition in order for the wind to come and blow it in the direction that it wishes. It's a beautiful divine partnership that God invites us into when we repent and we put our trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And so you are already holy, but you're also becoming holy. This is so incredibly important for us to understand. And if we forget that we are already holy, we will not have the power to partner with God to become it. Paul will put it this way. He'll say, therefore, this is uh, to uh, the Philippians. He'll say, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what does he say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How? For it is God right? Let me go back. The, the work out, if we can go back, work out your salvation. He's, that, is a, that is an imperative, okay? That is a, a command. That is uh, telling you what to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but for it is God who works in you. So which one is it, right? We, we, we have to get, we have to live with this tension, that, that scriptures call us to partner with God, and yet it is God 
who works in you both to will. So even the desire to want to be holy is a desire that God places in you. He works it in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The mystery of our true and genuine, the mystery of the true and genuine work of God is that it's his true and genuine power that calls us to work. And so, holiness is both a state of being and it is a process of becoming. It's, it's, being, it's being in Christ and it's becoming like Christ. Holiness is being in Christ objectively and subjectively through your life. And we'll talk about that, what that looks like is becoming like Christ. But why? That's what it is. But why is it important? Why is this important? Exploring this, pursuing this is of utmost importance. Listen, holiness is not about a hyper-spiritual elitism that we often think it is. It's about the very fabric of our being, of our existence, of our purpose. Holiness is about being and becoming like Jesus for the sake of the world. And we have to get this. That holiness isn't for us only. Holiness is directed towards the world. Holiness is the goal of redemption. It's what we were made for. It's about being human. It's about being humane. J.I. Packer would write this. He says, genuine holiness is genuine Christ-likeness. And genuine Christ-likeness is genuine humanness. The only genuine humanness there is. It is about being what we would have been if Adam had not sinned. Uh, Paul will put it to the Ephesians like this. He'll say, uh, Christ loved the church and he gave himself, up, gave himself up for her. Why? So that he may holy her, holify her, sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The preacher of the book of Hebrews, but the book of Hebrews, by the way, is one sermon. I, I encourage you, if you're ever feeling just even a little bit down, uh, a little bit discouraged, read the book of Hebrews. In the, in, in the, the sermon of Hebrews, uh, he says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Oh. Holiness is of first order importance for us to understand and get right. Holiness and its pursuit are not secondary issues, but it's become so for us. It's become quite optional. Uh, uh, somehow the devil has convinced a whole generation of Christians that holiness is kind of passe, that we should pursue rather than holiness, authenticity. Now, I want to say this. I'm all for authenticity. I am. Real, being real is one of our values here at, at Anchor Southwest. We don't, we don't do pretend because God will not change what we continue to deny. But we've often misused the idea of authenticity to nurse our sins and our dysfunction. We, we have to say that. As if your old self, your false self, the flesh is the truest and the deepest part of you. To be authentic, to be truly authentic, is to mortify the flesh, to put it to death, to pursue holiness, to cultivate it. That's the most authentic you will ever be, to become like Christ, the most authentic, the true authentic human being. And so one way that we're tricked into believing that holiness is somehow optional is uh, uh, because to pursue holiness means to lay aside the ways that are ingrained in us that bring about death in our lives. You're asking me to, to put to aside who I am, and that is exactly what Jesus is asking you to do, to become your true self. Because the call of the gospel is to come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? You, many of us know him. German uh, underground pastor wrote uh, uh, The Cost of Community, The, the Cost of Discipleship, rather, Life Together. He, he said that, that the gospel is a call to come and die. Come and die to the unhealthy parts, to the parts of death, to the flesh. And so, rather than picking up our 
cross, holiness has become an optional because we feel it's not authentic to deny ourselves. That's one side of the coin. But there's an even greater trick that the devil has against us. We've been led to believe that if we pursue and if we talk about and if we cultivate holiness, that will necessarily lead us to become legalists. Ugh. The last thing we want to be is holier than thou people, right? The last thing we want to be are Pharisees, the people that Jesus rails against in the Gospels. We are deathly afraid of being labeled a Pharisee. We detest holier-than-thou attitude, and so uh, uh, because it's, it has often so plagued the church and her witness, but legalism is born not when we pursue holiness. Le legalism is, is basically saying that I can earn my way into the favor of God, but legal le legalism is born when we believe that our effort earns our way to God. Our effort does not win us approval with God. It proves that we already have it. But when we begin to look at our virtue and trust in that, then we get into all sorts of trouble. And so to avoid the potential of becoming a Pharisee, we remain in our old sinful patterns. And so on one side, we avoid holiness because it doesn't feel authentic. On the other side, we avoid holiness, uh, the, the, the work of formation, because we don't want to become legalists. But Scripture doesn't offer us those two options. It doesn't offer us the option of taking up our formation or not. We're either pursuing God's heart and vision and will for our lives, or we will be living subpar Christian lives, being shaped by the culture. Those are your options. And now that we've established what holiness is and why it is important, the question is, and how do we get it? And this is where 1 Peter uh, comes in when he, he says this. He says, therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Oof. Peter instructs his friends here in Asia Minor to set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. This is what I think he is saying, that Jesus, listen, Jesus will come back. He will come back. Not in your hearts, not in your minds, not in your imaginations. Jesus will physically come back to earth. He will be revealed to all of humanity. He will come back on the clouds just as he left. He was once revealed in humility. But let me tell you that the next time you see him, you're not going to think peasant. Okay? He will come back as a conquering king to eradicate evil and bring about his kingdom of justice and love and peace. And when he is revealed at that point in time, if we're alive, if we get to see it, or if we wake up to it. When we see him, that point, in that moment in time, history, and we meet him in the sky, 1 Thessalonians says, at that point, John tells us that we will be like him. And Peter is saying this, that moment, that one moment where we get to see Jesus face to face, Put your trust in that fully. Put your, all your eggs go in that basket. The fact that you will one day turn, your faith will turn into sight. Set your hope on that. Set your dreams on that. Set your direction towards that. Set, set your priorities in your life now according to that. Go all in for that moment. That one moment when we will see him. Now listen, I don't know what eternity will look like, but I know this, that there is no moment in all of my existence of my 38 years that God has graced me with. There's nothing, nothing that can compare to the moment, the anticipation of seeing the face of the one who loves me. Nothing will compare. There's no wedding day, and I love my wife to death. 
I love my children to eternity and back. A candle to the sun compared to the moment where we get to see Jesus. Nothing compares. There's no amount of money or sex or reputation or power or love or comfort. Nothing will compare. I don't care how. I don't, I don't care if you had Babylonian hanging gardens at your wedding. I, I, I don't care how beautiful your wedding was. I mean, I care. I, I mean, I, I, I care. of course I care, you know. But I don't, I don't care. Because nothing will compare. Nothing. And Peter's saying this. Set your hope fully on that moment. On the moment where Jesus will be revealed. On the moment that we will see him. Nothing else will compare. And, and for this, in order to do this, we must uh, 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 set, um, he, he, he asks us, and, and Karen Jobes is, is a great um, uh, scholar, and she writes this. In other words, Peter instructs his readers to set their hope on the grace that will be theirs at Jesus' return by being fully able to think. Uh, we, we have the reputation somehow uh, that Christians are asked to check their brains at the door, right? This, this is a place of faith, not of thinking. No, 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 but Peter's calling us to think. Fully able to think and act on the basis of their true nature in Christ, despite whatever hostility such a lifestyle might provoke from their society. To, to think and act on the reality that that is coming for us. And literally, uh, uh, th this word here uh, that Paul says here, to, to gird our, our, the loins of our minds, right? To, to get ready to fight, right? Men back in the day would wear, and in some cultures still today, would wear long robes. And, and they, it makes it very difficult, I imagine, to run, right? And if you were about to get into a scuffle, even harder. And so what men would do, they, they would gird their loins. They would take up their, their long robes and tuck them into their belts. And that's what Peter is saying, to, to gird up the, the loins of your mind, get ready to fight. Meaning this, Understand this, Christian, that we live in a hostile environment that is actively opposed to your allegiance to Jesus. And so your mind needs to be ready and you need to be sober-minded. Stop pretending like we're living in peacetime. There's a war for your affections and a war for your mind and a war for your attention, a war for your allegiance. And this hostile environment, you have to know, is shaping you to be a particular kind of person. You must understand this. You must understand what any ad agency understands. Like, basic. This hostile environment is shaping you to be a particular kind of person, and Peter is calling us to not be shaped by the things that used to shape us before we follow Jesus. He says this in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter is calling us to counter-formation. That is what he is calling us here today, to counter-formation. It's counter-formation because you need to be aware that you are already being formed by the culture. C.S. Lewis said that what our bodies do affect our souls. Now, we, we think it, it works just the other way around. But what our bodies do affects our souls. And so what we do with our bodies shape us. This is, why we, what, this, is, this is why what we pay attention to, what we set our minds on, is so incredibly important. What you do ends up doing something to you, right? What we do, what we give our attention to, ends up doing something to us. Do you know why you don't have to pay, uh, sorry, rather, you have to pay a lot of money. You know why you have to pay for Netflix? For the premium su subscription anyway? You get no ads, right? It's great, I, I don't get interrupted when I'm watching Seinfeld, this is amazing. Free to air may not cost you any money, besides whatever electricity you're using and the TV that you're watching it on, but you best believe that it's costing you something. It's costing you something because we pay with our attention. That, that's why commercial, that's why you can, that's why, that's why companies will pay the NFL a million dollars during the Super Bowl to play a 30-second ad. A million, who's got that kind of money? 30-second ad, a million dollars, no problem, why? Because they know something that we are so oblivious to so much of the time. 
This is why Facebook made 100, this is ridiculous. This is why Facebook made $114 billion US in 2022 in advertising revenue alone. That's why it's free for you, but it's not. It really isn't because we pay with our attention. And this is what the advertising world knows that the church needs to wake up to, and it's this. It's that what we give our attention to will build the furniture of our imagination. Our attention, where, where our eyeballs go, this is why your attention is monetized today, because they know that where your attention is, your imagination will be shaped. And where our imagination is, the, the imagination is the engine room of desire, right? Because it's, it's, what we, it's what we put our minds to, that we begin to desire this, right? Half of the things that we buy, we don't really, right, 75%, we don't need or really want at one point, but where we put our attention will shape our imagination, and our imagination is the engine room of desire, and our desire will then in turn shape our values. And then what happens to values? Values then give birth to choices. That's what happens. Listen, I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm saying it is simple. That what we give our attention to will ultimately build the furniture of our imaginations. And our imagination is the engine room of desire. And desire will then turn and shape our values. And our values, you best believe, ultimately give birth to our choices. This is why where we place our eyeballs make some people very, very rich in the world. And so Peter instructs his readers again in uh, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Why? Because you have a new name. You're hagios now. You're a holy one. Remember, because holiness is not just about becoming something, it is about already being someone. You have a new name, a new status. You're a child of God. You're no longer a child of wrath. Peter is saying, act like it. That's it. That's my message today. If you remember it, just act like what you already are. Become what you are because he who called you is that. This is what he will say in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter is not assuming, by the way, that we will be morally perfect in our conduct. The New Testament has a very, very robust theology of continuing indwelling sin in the believer, by the way. A very robust theology. That as we wait for Jesus, even as the penalty of sin is gone, the presence of sin is still with us. One day when Jesus comes back, the presence of sin will be gone as well. But for now, we live with the presence of sin. To call, the call for us is to be distinct, to be different, to be set apart. And so before we get hung up theologically on this, notice that you being a child of God, you already being set apart, you already being sanctified for God's purposes in the world is what makes your effort to become what you already are possible. It is possible to be set apart from the culture in the same way that God is set apart. Not so that you would be a judgmental shrew over and against the culture, but so that you would hold out a different vision of living, one that leads to flourishing, a beautiful alternative for the world, for the sake of the culture. And so we need to rewire our thinking here. We're called to be set apart, not to be apart. Notice the difference. We're called to be set apart, but not to be apart from the world. We'll talk more about this next week, but it's so important to note now that God calls us out of the world for the sake of it. We miss this. I, don't quote me on this. I think this statistic is still true, that within five years of becoming a Christian, most Christians don't have any people who they know outside of the faith. We've separated ourselves, but we're not, we're not called to be separate from, like, like to, to be completely separate from the world. We're, we're called to be distinct from the world in it, for it. Holiness is not a carrot uh, that God dangles before you, but is ever out of reach. You have to have it in the horizon of your possibility that by grace, listen, I'm, I, I'm, I love you, that by grace you can become holy. 
Uh, John Berridge, 18th century hymnist, he wrote this. He said, uh, run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. Right? So the law is saying, do this, do this, do this, but it gives you no power to do it. The gospel, rather, but sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, fly and lends me wings. And so what the gospel commands, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, is what Jesus says. Be holy because God is holy, what Peter says. The gospel both commands and supplies. And so how do we get holiness? We get ready for action. We remain sober-minded so that we would not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And this is based on who God is, on his character. Because he is holy, now we are holy. But Peter will give us another rationale for why we should pursue holiness when he says this in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why should we pursue holiness? Because God is Father. Because God is your Father. I know, we hear that. We have so many broken stories with our fathers. But God is your Father. J.I. Packer will say this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And because God is Father, a Father that does not judge impartially, we're to conduct ourselves with fear during our time as chosen rejects, with the knowledge that we're saved, we're bought back, we are ransomed from our old ways of death, we're bought back with the precious blood of Christ. This is no small thing. It is no small thing that we were so broken that the world was so dysfunctional and so thrown into sin, so under the, the power of the evil one that the Son of God had to die for us. And it's through Jesus' blood shed on the cross, not our own goodness, that we are now believers in God. And because now of that, we've been born again. But let me let Peter say it. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, the good news that was preached to you. Do you know why you even, if you believe, why you believe right now? Somebody, a regular old human, shared the gospel with you, this eternal word. They were loving enough. They were brave enough. They cared more about your eternal destiny than your opinion of them. And so they shared the gospel with you. Over 20 years ago, I was lost. And Maria comes along and tells me that God has a calling on my life. Give me a break, Maria. I thought she was crazy right? So she gives me this little NIV leather brown Bible, and she begins to share the good news of Jesus with me. At the same time, my brother-in-law Carlos starts going back to church, begins to pray for me and share the good news of Jesus with me. And I'm telling you that it is a miracle. I've cleaned up, sure, and this is who you know. It is a miracle that I believed then, and it is a miracle that I continue to believe still. It is a miracle that I'm standing here telling you, this is it's a joke, I'm, tell, I'm telling you about Jesus, me. It shouldn't have happened. It wasn't my plan, it wasn't the enemy's plan, but it, it, it sure, hell, as sure, as sure as hell exists was not the enemy's plan for my life, nor yours. And the only reason why I'm still standing here is not because of my goodness. It's not because of my holiness. It's not because of my good decisions or my pedigree or my theological degrees. It's because I've been born of a seed that's imperishable. One that doesn't fade. One that doesn't perish. One that is eternal. This shouldn't have happened. For all flesh is like grass and its glory 
like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. And this word that lasts forever isn't just any old word. This word that is eternal, the one, the word in which the angels long to look into, the word that the prophets of old prophesied about is the gospel. So let me preach the gospel to you real quick and then I'm done. This is the word that declares that God is just. This is the word that bids Jesus to carry the cross on his back. This is the word that delivers the news that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the word that sentenced every single person under the sound of my voice to death. This is the word that reminds us that we needed rescue from outside of ourselves. This is the word that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to make us saints. This is the eternal word of the sinless life of Jesus, the eternal word of the vicarious death of Jesus, the eternal word of the triumphant resurrection of Jesus. This eternal word is the word of his victorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. This is the eternal word that is pouring out the empowering presence of Jesus. And this is the word, Peter says, that saves you. You are far more sinful than you would ever understand or care to believe or care to admit and you are far more loved than you have the capacity to understand just receive it the only way to holiness is to receive the word of God saying that he loves you we're commanded to pursue holiness and then the gospel gives us the grace to pursue it so let me give you a quick framework oh I thought I was done I got pages left <laughs> just a couple I want to give you a quick framework for you to walk away. There, there are five elements that I want to give us uh, to help us grow in holiness, okay? Not, not Illuminati. I'm going to fill that out. The first one is the gospel. The gospel, the true story of what you just heard, of what God in Christ has done to save us from Satan, sin, and death and our, uh, as being our operating center. It's the story that makes sense of our life. If we're ever going to grow in holiness, we must understand and know and believe and be excited by and be captivated by the gospel. But that's not enough alone. We must partner that with our practices, with what we do with our bodies. Because remember, what we do with our bodies affects our souls. Growing in Christ's likeness is not just about knowing something. It is about doing something with that something that you know. And so we need to take up practices that form Christ in us. Practices like silence and scripture and gospel community and gathering as the people of God on Sundays and solitude and fasting and prayer and scripture reading. Engaging in practices in God's ordained way is God's ordained way of forming Christ in us. But it can't happen alone because we need community. We need fellow chosen rejects to walk with if we're ever going to make it. God has saved used. Yes, you, singular, but God has also saved yous. He's creating a people through which he can rule. And if we're going to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness, we need each other. That's still not enough. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to grow in Christ. He is the environment within which we live. He is the, the soil in which we are planted is the Holy Spirit. He lives in us and we in Him. And the final element is time. This doesn't happen overnight, regardless of how elated our worship can be, the tingles that you may feel in prayer. Some of us have leaps, I understand that, just like children. There's leaps in our lives, I get that. But ultimately, time is the final element. We grow through the ups and downs of life through the vicarious experiences, uh, through the various, rather, the various experiences that we encounter throughout life. While we are instantly, listen to this, listen. While we are instantly made holy, objectively, in Christ, it takes a lifetime to grow into holiness. A lifetime. This is not rocket science. It's gospel and practices and community in the Holy Spirit over time. So I want to end I'm going to call the band up. I want to end with this extensive quote from J.R. Packer's phenomenal, it's not going to be on the screen, um, his, a, a quote from his phenomenal work on holiness that I would unreservedly recommend. I was blown away by the scope of this excerpt, and he, he says this, holiness is a matter of both action 
and motivation, of conduct and character, of divine grace and human effort, of obedience and creativity, of submission and initiative, consecration to God and the commitment to people, self-discipline and self-giving, righteousness and love. It is a matter of spirit-led law-keeping, a walk or a course of life in the spirit that displays the fruit of the spirit. It is a matter of seeking to imitate Jesus' way of behaving through depending on Jesus for deliverance from carnal self-absorption and for the discernment of spiritual needs and possibilities. It is a matter of patient, persistent uprightness, for taking, of taking God's side against sin in our own lives and in the lives of others, of worshiping God in spirit as one serves him in the world, and of single-minded, wholehearted, free, listen, of single-minded, this is what we're on about. Of wholehearted, I'm giving my whole self to this. Of free, there's no coercion. And glad, there's joy to be had. And the glad concentration on the business of pleasing God. Holiness is thus a demonstration of faith working by love. And so my hope and my prayer is that we would be a scandalously, scandalously holy church wholly given in single-mindedness, wholeheartedness, free and glad concentration on the business of pleasing God. And that, as a result, many, and as a result, our, my prayer and our deep desire is that our holiness would mirror the holiness of Jesus which attracted sinners, did not repel them. It, it repelled religious folks, but it attracted the broken. We're not used to that kind of holiness. We're used to the kind of holiness that will attract the religious and repel the sinner. But what does holiness look like? When it's a holiness that will attract those who are far from God and repel those who think they're close to Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've given us enough health and energy to make it through this one. And I ask that you would now instill in us, Lord, a spirit of holiness, that you would call to mind the ways that we need to die to our false selves and uh, wake up to the truth of who we really are in Christ. Help us to put to death the things that are only producing death in our lives and help us to then cultivate practices that will bring new life, that you use to bring new life. And so we thank you, Jesus. This is all based on your finished work. We have nothing to prove and yet a lot to do. And it's in your name that we pray. And the church said?